0: It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.
1: Everyone on the offside, inside the ring. Threaded away. Boundary to MS Dhoni.
2: Just one required now. Scores are level with that boundary from uh, Donny. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. menes And on this edition of the show, I've got an interview with Nick Hockley, the CEO of the T20 World Cup, to come. But to kick things off, I've got former Australian fast bowler and cricket guru who's been doing the media rounds all summer, John the Duke Hastings. I've finally got you on the podcast, mate. How are you?
0: <laughs> Dennis, I'm good, mate. Thanks for having me on.
2: Mate, I've, just, I've heard you on every other cricket podcast, and I know you've got your own. <laughs> I thought, he's yeah. a pro. He's a pro. So, <laughs> called you off the bench. Far
0: from it, mate. Far from it. But yes, you're right. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have kept playing cricket this year, but uh, not to be, and... I've been lucky. I've been here, there and everywhere this year, just uh, floating across a few medians. So it's been nice. It's uh, been an enormous summer as well.
2: Yeah, it has been an, an enormous summer. And, you know, I've got you on because I want to try and get to the bottom of Australia's one-day problems because, yeah. you know, the Aussie side went into this series full of confidence after the T20 win and then they've lost both the opening ODIs in India. And, and I think our one-day side has just forgotten how to win the tight situations. And, I don't know, what can you tell us about what it's like when you're in a team that's struggling to win those moments?
0: Oh, it, it can be hard, mate. It, it really can. We might need a, a little bit more time than, than just what we've got, but uh, <laughs> we'll see how we go. I mean, it's, it, it is one of those things. I think it, it, it's an art, you're right, in winning, uh, but winning the close ones is an even bigger art. Uh, I, I think the way that we were able to sneak over the line in that first T20 was, was a good sign. Um, and the way that um, Glenn Maxwell played in those T20s was was a very good sign as well. Look, I think being in the Australian cricket team over the last probably 12 to 18 months has been a very, very tough thing Um, just from from seeing from an outsider's perspective, just seeing how much media scrutiny has been on the team, seeing what they've gone through, obviously over in South Africa, it's a rebuilding phase and I think we are on the right track there's no doubt about that, especially in the white ball format, I think there's a really good feel amongst the group. I've loved what the bowlers have been able to do with our, so you know, our big three being out of the team in, in Stark, Hazelwood, and Cummins for the majority of it. But you know, it's great to have him back in the white ball setup. He was fantastic uh, the other night and taking four for. But I don't know; those close ones just come down to, I suppose, a bit of experience. Not being able to have been in that situation before. Not being able to. Um, navigate your way through that situation, and and maybe just a little bit of panic as well. But I mean, having been in it myself over over the years, it's sometimes those close ones in the back end, especially the one the other night, you would have thought thirty thirty four or thirty three with five wickets in hand. Nine times out of ten, you are going to get that result in your favour if you are the batting side. But I think just on that occasion. Gaspett Boomer is a world-class bowler as well, but you know, on that occasion, that was cricket, and Marcus Stoinis, for the most part, did a really good job.
2: But but don't you think it becomes a double-edged sword that the opposition starts to sense your vulnerability, and when you start losing those key moments, then the opposition starts to know that you're vulnerable next time you're in a a situation like that, and you give them a little bit of a, a sniff, and it kind of snowballs? Yeah,
0: I, I agree with that. I, I, I do, I think, especially playing against some teams over the years that I've I've seen, I I think, you know, if, if it gets down to that and you get one or two wickets and it opens the game up, you do. You get a sniff, you smell blood in the water and you think, right, we're on here. If we stick to our guns, well, we know that this team's been vulnerable in the past and it can happen again. So I think that's very much what can happen. And it's probably what's happening at the moment. In one day, international cricket, We've only played, really, India this summer in in the one-day international, so they know. They know that the games in Australia, they had the wood over us, and they know that uh, in in those first two one-dayers over in India, on Indian soil, they've had the wood over us as well. So it's going to be hard to turn around. I don't think India have played that good of cricket over on their home packs, to be honest. I think we played really good in the T20s, but as I said, it's just been that that inability to be able to finish off games and put the icing on games, and, and it can be tough at times to try and wrestle back that momentum.
2: Now, John, I did some thorough research for this uh, interview <laughs> and I uh, pulled out that your last one-day one international for Australia was barely 18 months ago. It was uh, June 2017. So it wasn't yep. that long ago that you were you were in the dressing room. And, and tell me, what, what was it like in the one-day dressing room when you were there, I mean, I know you played a lot in 2015 and 2016. And, you know, I think it's been lost that the one day team has been on the slide for a while. So it's not like we have uh, just got here out of nowhere. So tell me what was it like when you were there in the dressing room? You know, what was Uh Booth's approach and, and the skippers approach to ODI cricket?
0: Yeah, it was an interesting time when I got back in. I hadn't played a one-day game for about five years, so it was interesting to come in and see the change in dynamic from what it was probably you know, in 2010, 11, in that World Cup, and even 12. was, It was different. It was different in a sense that I don't think we played our best team all the time. I think back in, in, in 2010, 11, 12, when I, when I was playing for the first couple of years, we, we tended to play our best team all the time what was perceived to be our best team all the time and I think floating in the last few years it's really been about resting some players um, workload management I think that's probably the reason why there's just been a little bit of insecurity in our batting ranks but also a little bit of inconsistency in our bowling ranks and getting those partnerships right and knowing when the right time to strike is and, and so on so I think that's probably got something to do with our performance but in terms of actually being inside the dressing room and being an Australian cricketer, it's great fun. It's absolutely the best time of your life. You know, you're representing the whole nation. You get to play against the best players in the world on the best grounds in the world. So it should be a lot of fun. I think this season especially, it's been a drag on the players. It's, you can just see them sometimes in their media, Uh, interviews and um, the way it's been, it just seems like it's just been a bit of a downer and you can see that. I mean, and quite rightly so. But when I was there, it was the best time. Darren Lehman was very, very good at getting the boys together and getting around and enjoying your teammates' success as well. So, I've only ever had great things to say about being in that dressing room. But I think our performance has been different because of those reasons, as I said.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with you with the rotation. Australia's used a a lot of players in one-day cricket over the last few years, and that's affected the performance. But what about players' roles in a one-day team? And I think players need clear-defined roles about where they bowl and what, what their role is in the batting order. And I just feel that maybe we were a little bit complacent and maybe it was the coaches, maybe it was the captain, but we kind of l- let the roles drift and we just expected yeah. throw someone in there and they'll, they'll do fine.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a fair comment as well. I think the, the roles have probably got a little bit mixed in terms of we've had an idea of a role that we want someone to play. I think that is if we want an all-rounder, we have an idea of the all-rounder that we want to play or we have an idea of the death bowler that we want, but not necessarily have we pick someone who's got the ability to be able to fulfil that role. I think that's probably somewhere where we've fallen down as well—is just picking someone on ideas of what we want rather than actually having someone like a specialist, a specialist death bowler or a specialist all rounder. Dan Christian, for example, just springs to mind when I'm speaking about that comment. Is he's a specialist T20 player or he's a specialist white ball player? So that could be someone that could fill that role. But do you understand what I mean by that? I'm mm. uh, sort of—I just think. We just haven't really nailed our selection in the white ball format over the last few years. It's almost been, you know, we've got this guy who's a pretty good new ball bowler, but he's not necessarily a great white ball bowler, for example. So I think that's maybe a reason. Some One of the reasons why um, we've fallen down in, in that way as well.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think, say for an example, a leader like George Bailey, I would think yeah. his skill as a leader was undervalued by the yep. selectors because, you know, when Clark left, there was a leadership vacuum there and yep. perhaps, you know, installing a strong leader like a Bailey could have built a new culture and developed a new side, but, you know, it didn't happen.
0: No, that's right. And that's, that's you know, goes back to my point in, in being able to pick that person, the right person for the job, not necessarily the idea. So I think that's maybe one, yeah, that is definitely one one area where we have, have just missed a trick, I think, in our white ball and, I don't know, it's going to be hard to turn around. We've got eight games or, um, you know, ten games probably, a couple of warm-up games before the World Cup to try and turn it around, and defending champions. It just goes to show how much changes over that four-year cycle of a World Cup cycle, where we, where we were in fifteen to where we are now.
2: Do you think we were a bit complacent after the 2015 World Cup? Just the, the way the team was put together, just sort of, sort of reeked of just... I don't know, cruising along, thinking it would all just fall into place.
0: Well, I think that's yeah, but probably we're probably all guilty of being a little bit complacent in Australian cricket over the last five years. In my view, I think there's been a lot of things that have fallen by the wayside. I know we're talking about white ball cricket at the moment, but you can be, you could probably talk about the Sheffield Shield being put in that basket as well. We've we really made that uh, I has probably been watered down over the past five years, and you know made almost like an experimental type first class setup different wickets, different balls. And I do think there's been an element of complacency in Australian cricket for a number of years now.
2: Well, when you look at the 50-over the domestic competition. I mean, it feeds right into these white ball sides. If you're an Aussie f- player and you pull a hammy before the JLT 50-over domestic competition, well, you're going to miss it because it's two or three weeks long and that's it. You don't play any 50-over cricket for your state all summer. So we've got domestic players that aren't really practicing that skill.
0: It, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, it's, that was one of the things that I know that they tried that five years ago leading into a World Cup year is to try and get that tournament-style play. And I don't mind that. That's fair enough. If it's a World Cup year, try and get a tournament-style play and get your, get your top players used to that. That's okay. But then we went away from playing on the, on the first-class venues. The wickets started to deteriorate, and you didn't get a good indication of where a lot of players were at. So, it was tough. I know in times when I was playing in uh, the JLP one-day series, you'd go for sort of 30 off your 10 overs and think you'd done a really good job, but it was actually the surface that you played on that, that helped you get to that point. So, yeah, I, I think that's something that we also need to look at is the scheduling and how we, we do treat our domestic tournaments, both in, uh, well, in all three, really, the big bash for one Days and and the Shield stuff. So, yeah, I think that's somewhere where we need to look
2: as well. Well, the high-performance department is radically changing, so they're, they're actually splitting the roles, and there's going to be someone focused on the, the state development pathways, which I think is a, a very positive change. Um, yeah, very positive. You know, Australia had India 4 for 99, and Australia needed 34 off 33 in both those games. And, you know, a few years ago, you'd have just banked, oh, Australia's going to win this, you know. Yep. And, and they've Absolutely. lost that. Do, do you think, though, they can turn it around before the World Cup? Do you think they can get enough momentum going that they can actually make the semi finals?
0: I think they can. Yeah, I, I do. I think the emergence of Glenn Maxwell as a cricketer over the last probably... Twelve months and what he's been able to do with the Melbourne Stars and the way he's playing now, I think he's going to be a very big member of our team and and and, and along with Marcus Stoinis, I think so. There's some really good stuff there. Pat Cummins is an out and out superstar, I think. Adam Zampa has been doing a very good job, and he's a lock. He's our number one white ball spinner, in my eyes. There's no doubt about that now. What he's been able to do to Virat Kohli in recent times has been very good, and he's going to go down as one of the best players that we've ever seen, especially in, in the modern generation. So I think, look, there's some there's some good stuff there from from the Australian boys. I know the form of Aaron Finch at the top of the order is a big sticking point, but like what we said beforehand, I think the leadership that he possesses and the aggressive game style that he's got and just the way he understands white ball cricket, I think he's going to be crucial for us leading forward. So he's the big, big factor for me. It's just to get him back into form. I think he showed a glimpse the other night, 37. Started to get a bit more flow to his batting. So he's going to be the key as well. And I think he will be there throughout that World Cup. But I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Forget Mitchell Stark back up and firing. He's one of the best deaf bowlers in the world. Josh Hazelwood in English conditions with a white ball. Stephen Smith and David Warner are going to come back into that side and they're going to have a point to prove. So I like those two with a point to prove. And I think they, in their time, 12 months is a long time to be out, but in their time of actually their career, they've been fantastic players. Both been number one in the world at stages. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom. But, you know, as you mentioned, Menace, it has been probably glossed over a little bit, our form of uh, the one day side. Of, of recent times, probably the last few years, to be
2: honest. Yeah, I sat down with Trent Copeland for a podcast about this time last summer, and he was quite surprised at the stats I had about the poor run of results. Could, could you see it coming when you were playing in the Aussie one-day side? Could you see that maybe it was starting to drift?
0: Well, my last, it's interesting you say that, my last series was one of the more extraordinary ones I've seen in in uh, my time playing for Australia. It was right at the end of the, the IPL. A lot of guys had... Already got Holiday's booked. that had a really big summer at home. They had a really long IPL grind. And they got to the Champions Trophy probably four or five days beforehand. If you played in the final, certainly you got there maybe two or three days before our first warm-up game against Bangladesh. And it was a different feel. It was a very lethargic feel. It was a very, uh, sort of, how can I put it? It was almost like a chore, if you like. And that was never... Uh, the case for me throughout my entire career that I'd ever seen that. So it wasn't a bad indication, but it was sort of a turning point where I look back now and think, wow, that, that was probably it for me that I, the first time that I really noticed looking back on it now was that that was probably the shift in it. And that was where a lot of guys started to get rested and it was a different-looking one-day international team. So it was a very interesting time for me to sit back and watch that unfold. You know, we got knocked out. Of the, of the Champions Trophy against England and it was very bitter pill to swallow but it didn't seem like it meant that much to the rest of the dressing room and that's not saying that's not being harsh that was just the current state that a lot of the guys were in um, was just that they were so fatigued and so mentally cooked leading into a an ICC event so that was for me probably one of the turning points
2: well it's an interesting insight John I'm going to have to let you go because we, we I think we've got to some of the bottom of Australian cricket problems so this could be an historic podcast um, <laughs> <it'll>... <laughs> yeah. so last thing though I just want to say you know I live in Sydney I'm a you know I go to all the Sixers games and I was just so gutted that you know you had to retire before the season and you couldn't play in the big bash it w- would have been great to see you running around in the magenta and I'm glad though everything's worked out so well for you now
0: yeah I appreciate it man it would have been very nice to finish off my career where it all started um, and, and get back to Sydney but it wasn't to be it wasn't my chosen uh, path for this, this summer but you know, I appreciate that mate I, I really do it would have been nice but um, not to be and the summer of cricket continues but thanks for having me on it's been, it's been good fun
2: No worries John good luck and uh, we'll catch up again Thanks mate Thanks very much to John Hastings for coming on the podcast and my special guest on the next podcast will be none other than Elise Perry so stay tuned for that one also want to thank uh, Bolology for leaving a five-star iTunes review last week. I wonder if uh, he's any or she's any relation to the Bolologist Damien Fleming. So um, if you can write in and let me know, that'd be great. Also thanks to Sam Hickey for sending in a really nice email and the bit that stood out to me was that he said he agrees with my opinions on cricket and Ben Horn's opinions on cricket. So nice to hear Sam's uh, feedback there. And if, if you have time, leave a review on whatever app you listen to the podcast on or you can email in questions or any feedback to cricket Pod. that's aus cricketpod at gmail.com and get in touch that way i'm on twitter at ameners or you can find the podcast on twitter at oz cricket pod the podcast is also on facebook as the australian cricket podcast well let's get on to our next interview for this podcast Next year, Australia has the honour of hosting not one, but two T20 World Cups. Australia will host the Women's T20 World Cup in February, March, and then the Men's T20 World Cup in October and November. And joining me after the break, I have the the CEO of the organising committee charged with putting all that together, two World Cups in one year. It's an enormous task. So coming up after the break, I'll have Nick Hockley from the T20 Organising Committee. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered Podcast brought to you by News Corp. I'm your host, Andrew Metzel. And now joining me to discuss the very exciting T20 World Cups coming to Australia next year is the Chief Executive Officer, Nick Hockley. Nick, how are you? Very well,
1: Andrew. Great
2: to speak. Great to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited, being a huge cricket fan, that Australia will be hosting the women's and the men's T20 World Cups next year. Uh, The women beginning in February, the men in October. But I imagine for you that means a lot of work.
1: Uh, It's a busy time, but it's a fantastic project we'll be working on. We've got a brilliant team, not just the team on the local organising committee at the ICC, but around the venues, around our host cities, around all of the state and territory cricket associations. So this is a massive team effort, and we're just really excited and looking forward to, to maxing it out. We've got eight host cities. 13 venues and some great cricket coming up. So lots to look forward to.
2: So let's start with the Women's World Cup. Kicks off in February. Australia are the defending champions after lifting the trophy in the West Indies. Um, what have you learnt from that tournament in the, Windies, the The West Indies, the first ever Women's T20 World Cup standalone tournament? What have you gleaned from that experience?
1: Well, I think it's just been great validation uh, of our decision to hold the Women's T20 World Cup as a standalone event. That thinking dates back, really, to 2015, uh, when we first started looking at that in earnest. And we looked at a whole range of different World Cups. We looked at the FIFA Women's World Cup in Canada, which took place in 2015 and was just a massive, massive event. We looked at the Netball World Cup here, and that really led us to the view that the Women's T20 World Cup Uh, It it shouldn't be played in the afternoons before the men's matches. It deserves to be played in prime time in in the right size stadiums, after school, after work, so that it gets the full attention of the world, cricketing world in its own right. And I think what we've seen, uh, we saw the West Indies tournament was validation of that. It was a fantastic event. And we were also buoyed, I have to say, by the 2017 uh, ODI World Cup uh, in England, where India played uh, in front of um, England uh, in front of a sold out Lord's. So um, I think the overall message is that there's just there's just huge momentum and growth. And that's given us a great deal of confidence to play the women's T20 World Cup as a standalone and to schedule the matches. Uh, in in Australia's biggest venues.
2: It's going to be exciting. One thing from the the World Cup in the West Indies, the T20 World Cup was the the state of the pitches that you know it's really important for women's cricket to be played on pitches with a little bit of pace on them. Is that something you're going to be you know trying to achieve? Oh,
1: absolutely and I think you'll be aware that the West Indies they had a fair bit of weather come through just before the tournament which didn't didn't help them uh, in certain places um but uh, we're playing the women's event in february and march towards the end of the australian summer you know we're playing at the grounds like the wacker uh, we're playing at the, the new junction uh, newly refurbished junction oval in melbourne we're playing at the scg the mcg we're playing at sydney showground stadium so grounds that are very used to hosting the, the best cricket but also um hosting lots of uh, BBL, WBBL, T20 cricket, uh, but I think you're absolutely right. Is you know making sure that we're um, that the pitch preparation is, is spot on is, is a really is a is, a, is an absolute priority. Uh, we're very focused on it. The ICC are very focused on it.
2: So looking at the women's fixtures, I mean, what stood out to me is the semi final and the final. You've got a semi final day at the SCG, one of the best grounds in the country, and then the final is going to be played on International Women's Day. At the MCG, I mean, they are looking like two of the the best events in sport in next year for Australia.
1: Well, we hope, we hope so, and we'll, we'll be working really hard to make sure that everyone knows about it and everyone feels you know, really welcome. We want to make sure that uh, both the women's event and the men's event are the most inclusive cricket events. Um, I'm really excited about the semi-finals for the of the women's on Thursday, the fifth of March, and we've taken the decision to play those as a double header. And what that means is that travelling fans uh, and people from Sydney and, and from New South Wales uh, will be guaranteed to see the four best teams in the world all competing for a massive prize. And as you say, that massive prize is an opportunity to create history uh, three days later at the biggest cricket grounds in the world. Um, and it is fortuitous, as you say, that that falls on International Women's Day and And with that, I think, you know, it will be a fantastic World Cup. It will be a fantastic cricket event. But we really feel that um, the more that we talk to people, uh, the more we're starting to realise that this is an opportunity for cricket and for Australia to take a real leadership position in the development of, of women's sports and absolutely You know, if we're playing the men's final in the biggest cricket ground in the world, we should absolutely be playing the women's final in the biggest cricket ground in the world.
2: Yeah, I think the record for the most attended women's sporting event is around the 90,000 mark. So perhaps uh, you could give it a shake. Well, we we know that we can
1: fit that many in because if we look back to the the men's ODI World Cup in 2015, we had 93,013 people attend as you rightly say, the world record currently for the highest attendance at a women's sporting fixture actually dates back 20 years to 1999 and the FIFA Women's World Cup, which was held at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. And um, they managed to get 90,185 attendees to that event. So we know that the G will hold that many. I think what we want to make sure is that everyone knows about it, but also And we're really looking to the the cricketing community, to the broader community and everyone to really get behind it and show their support and and turn out. So just encourage everyone to save the date, save the date 8th of March, 2020 only one place to be. And that's the MCG.
2: Meg Lanning could Meg Lanning and her team could uh, help you out a bit if they make the final, I think in uh, bumping those numbers up. So one thing that stood out to me from looking at the women's world cup was the value for a family to go. You've got, two adults and two kids could go to a, a World Cup game for 50 bucks, which is a pretty good day out and pretty good value. Yes,
1: yeah, so, I mean, we've been given the ticket pricing a lot of thoughts. There's, there's a bit of an evolution if you look at in Australia around what some of the other sports have done and the, where they are in the life cycle about whether they do or they don't charge. Really, for cricket, um, both with international and also with select WBBL matches this season, Cricket Australia and the various uh, Big Bash clubs have started to charge uh, entry. So typically, um, that's been ten dollars for adults and kids in free. We're, we're very conscious that we're a moment in time. We're a, a World Cup, um, so we've been thinking about how we sit next to that, and but also wanting to make the World Cup, uh, you know, as you say, really accessible and really affordable. So um, w- where we've landed is that any game to the T20. Uh, Women's World Cup in 2020. There'll be adult tickets available from $20, and that includes the semi-finals that I've talked about and, and the final. And for kids across the board, all kids tickets, including the finals, will be will be $5. So we're, we're hoping that that uh, price won't be an impediment to coming. And we want the key message is that we want everyone to come, all ages, families, and uh, all different fans of competing teams to all become a part of be part of the celebration
2: now let's have a look at the men's tournament now it begins on the 18th of october you've got 16 teams competing i mean how do you manage the logistics of 16 t- hosting 16 teams you know flights hotels scheduling that must be a nightmare
1: well it's a pretty tight compressed schedule and the our key priority is making sure that we're putting on uh, the best condition best preparation the best training venues so that the best cricketers in the world perform at their peak. And I have to say, Australia is just fantastic at putting on major events. We've had phenomenal support from all of the different host cities. There is quite a bit to make sure that all the movements and the scheduling work so that we're making sure that within that condensed, intense period, that all the teams are getting enough rest. But, you know, I think also that the teams are used to playing in these. yeah, you know, World Cup takes on a diff- different field and a different life, and they'll be there'll be a lot of adrenaline from all the different teams all being in the same country at the same time. And one of the other things we've really tried to work hard to do is make sure that you know, each of the cities, whether it's Adelaide, Brisbane, Hobart, Melbourne, Perth, Sydney, Geelong, that they all see a great mix of the different competing teams. Because you know, as, you, as you know, there's, we've got really vibrant expat populations of all the different competing teams. And we want to make sure that they get to see their heroes in their backyards.
2: Certainly. Now, there, in the uh, groups, there were no, there's no India v Pakistan clash, or there's no Australia v England clash. How were the the groups for the men's tournament decided?
1: Um, so they were based on the rankings, the T20 international rankings, as at the 31st of December 2018. So at the end of last year, and. Uh, Pakistan at that time were ranked number one and India ranked number two so logistically there was just no way that they could appear in the same group and the the teams are be- uh, are allocated based on an even number of ranking points to each pool and that that determined who appeared in in each pool so um, in Australia's group group one we've got Pakistan who were ranked number one uh, along with New Zealand and the West Indies and then India head up group two to feature England, South Africa, and Afghanistan in the men's. And um, interesting to see that Afghanistan have qualified automatically for the Super 12 ahead of ahead of Sri Lanka, who won the event in 2014.
2: Yeah, it could have something to do with Rashid Khan, who's just unbelievable. Now, uh, you spoke. We spoke about pricing for the the women's tournament. I'm really interested in what's going to happen for the men's World T20 because you know I got tickets for the 2015 World Cup, and they were pretty high-priced tickets. They were, I didn't, you know, they were expensive and it it was, I guess, prohibitive for some people. Uh, What do you think you're going to do with the the tickets for the men's T20 World Cup?
1: Um, So we're working through that at the moment and we'll make some announcements later this year around the men's ticket pricing. Uh, I think for 2015, and as you know, I was involved in 2015, um, we tried to balance it so that there was a really, really good proportion of affordably priced tickets. And then... Obviously, for some of the marquee fixtures, uh, just given the demand, the, the prices are, are, are more akin to that kind of major world event that you know, Australia is fortunate to host many many of those. So um, I think we'll be looking at very much the same principle, a, a really significant number of, um, of highly affordable tickets so that everyone who wants to be part of the festival can be.
2: It is a balancing act, isn't it? Because if you, you sell the tickets too cheap, uh, you can sort of uh, bump up the secondary market.
1: No, and that's also a consideration. And, you know, I think Australia, again, um, is very advanced in terms of its anti-scalping legislation, and we've got fantastic support around the country in, in that respect. So, again, it's it's all about striking a balance. Ultimately, um, what we're really keen to ensure is that, you know, we've got packed stadiums all across the country.
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, and uh, there's going to be so many great matchups. I think you'll have... Loads of people wanting to go to them. Have you got any expectation on how many tourists you think will will visit for the tournament? It's a good question.
1: Probably our best benchmark is the 2015 Cricket World Cup, and there we had just over a million people attend matches, of whom 145,000 came from overseas, and about the same number again travelled from interstate to see matches. So I think we see that as a bit of a bit of a benchmark that we'd like to try try and beat. But that gives you a that gives you a sense for a, a major ICC event in Australia, the kind of proportion of people that will travel from overseas. And um, what, what we've seen, I mean, certainly in the subcontinent and then you know, with the growing number of expats in North America um, who typically don't have lots of cricket on their doorstep, you know, we're seeing you know, a, a greater affinity and appreciation for the T20 format and we're seeing you know, a growing number of people with increasing amounts of disposable income and greater propensity to travel, but we'll certainly be working with all the states and territories. We'll be working with Tourism Australia um, to make sure that we're promoting the tournament not only around Australia, but um, that we're we're welcoming as many guests as we can from overseas to be part of it, because that that all adds all adds to the atmosphere.
2: Absolutely, and you know what what legacy do you in particular want these tournaments uh, to leave on Australian sport? I guess.
1: Um, well, we've talked we've talked a bit about the our ambitions for the uh, women 's t20 World Cup I've got two daughters and you know I think the role models in the Australian team currently you know and across across all sports really are just incredible so I think you know, the first is uh, really acting as an accelerant to drive even further the development of uh, women's sport and um, cricket for women women and girls in, in particular by the same token not only do we want more uh, girls playing I think we want to use this as a catalyst and working very closely with our colleagues across Australian cricket um, to get more boys and girls picking up uh, a cricket bat Um, and then more broadly than that I think you know at this time having something that we um, all the different cultures and all the different communities uh, across Australia share and share in a share a shared celebration I think we'd really like to think that the World Cup can act as a, as a, as a driver to, to foster greater social cohesion and, and an appreciation of everyone's different, different cultures. So uh, one of the things that we've talked about is how World Cups bring people together. And then for T20 cricket, you know, we've talked about how that appeals to families of, and people of all different ages. Um, it's, it's after all the, the vehicle, the, the format of the game that's been, that's brought new, new fans and, and new generations to the game. Um, and then you've got all the different competing teams you know we saw the crowds for the india series this summer um and just the the noise and the passion that they bring um so we we see this as just being a spectacular celebration that brings people of all different cultures and all different generations together and uh, we think that that you know that that will help 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 drive a legacy and then on top of that we've talked about the number of visitors that we hope to see from overseas they will be staying in our hotels eating in our restaurants and so they'll we expect there to be a really uh, a tangible economic benefit from hosting the two world cups um, and then ultimately you know fantastic pictures of passionate sports fans being right across the world acts as a a, a a great advert for people to come come to australia in 2021 22 23 24 and and so on so um that that hopefully that that answers your question in terms of um you know this is not just it'll be a fantastic cricket tournament but um equally it's it's we see there as being significant longer-term benefits to cricket and also to the country
2: yeah someone that owns a cafe in sydney city i'm all up for more tourists coming to town last question nick you're you're the man in charge you're at the top of the tree what's your individual greatest challenge in organizing a tournament like this
1: again a really good question i mean i am you're just surrounded by so many fantastic people across all our partner organizations. so you know I think really um, a big part of my job is to make sure that everyone across all those partner organizations really feels part of it and has uh, feels that you know it's 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 their event um, as much as um, anyone else's. And I mean I think to put the question out of the way, people often ask me, um, what are you most worried about?" I'm I'm probably most worried about missing amazing opportunities that flow off the back of the tournament. So, you know, as as recently as last week, we partnered with this fantastic Sri Lankan play at the Belvoir Theatre at Sydney Sydney Town Hall and brought together a whole load of people from, from the Sri Lankan community off the back of Australia hosting the T20 World Cups in 2020. So I'm really excited about making sure that we, as I say, use this as an opportunity to bring people together a moment in time, and that we, um, you know, we don't wake up in 2021 saying, "If only we'd done that, this, or if only we'd done that." So it's ma- it's maximising the opportunity to its fullest extent.
2: Well, it sounds very noble, and it, it it's interesting that you see past the cricket. You know, you see the value in what this tournament could could bring to the Australian community. And I guess how long have you lived in Australia for?
1: So this is my second time round, and I've been here for six years. So I. Finished up on the London 2012 Games in October 2012 and moved over for the Cricket World Cup. And I have uh, one daughter born in, in London and one born, born in Sydney. And uh, I'm just having a fantastic, fantastic time um, and really consider, consider Australia to be home now.
2: Well, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time coming on the podcast. It was a fascinating insight into uh, what's going to be a very exciting year for cricket in this country. So thank you, Nick Hockley, for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for all your support. And uh, looking forward to it, looking forward to the journey. Thank you. Cheers.
2: Well, that is it for another episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to the show. I've been your host, Andrew Menzel. You've been listening to Cricket Unfiltered, and I'll be back soon with another podcast. <laughs>